Well, our names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own song so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone else's copyright infringement. And we live in a van and we eat from the trash. Making this podcast open for cash. You better listen up because we probably won't last. Because we can't compete with nonsense. Hypnotizing nonsense. This is episode 91, Terpsichore, and uh, we are, Gumby and I are sitting in the van, it's kind of a drizzly day, but the sun's out right now, so we're about ready to go on a backpacking adventure for four nights, but we wanted to record this before we went out. And uh, Gumby, do you want to say anything about Terpsichore or anything about what's going on? Well, I'd like to uh, talk about recent events. Um, <laughs> oh, God damn it! Boy, the other day, <laughs> Teresa started having really severe back pain, and um, we just smoked a little bit of weed. You know, we we're supposed to be relaxing and getting ready to watch a movie, but Teresa started having this back pain where she, at first she couldn't even play cards, and then she's kind of balled up in the yard and like doubled over, and you know, it's got a pot near her. She thinks she might puke, and I'm asking her, like, do you think you need to go see a doctor? And she says, uh, eventually, like, yeah. And, you know, what? It was like waves of pain in my lower right back that felt like nothing I'd ever felt before. It was like somebody with really strong fingers was poking me in my, like, lower right back. And I had previously, for weeks now, have had problems with pains in my right side, feeling like something was like getting bigger and bigger. So now I'll set you up for the story. And, uh, yeah. So, you know, one of the cool things about having a van, of course, as we've mentioned before, is wherever you go, you're home. So we decide probably the wisest thing is to go to the emergency room parking lot and park there and then like reevaluate because Teresa's thinking I might need a doctor. I don't know what this is. I thought it might be a kidney stone. Yeah, so we get there, and by the time we get there, she isn't feeling any better, so we don't wait long before Teresa decides, like, yeah, I'd better go in. So we go in, and we go through, you know, all the—if you've ever been to the emergency room, um, one of the good things about living in America, and I don't know how it is in other countries, is they—you cannot be denied medical care, Um they can charge you for it afterwards. It can ruin your credit. They can, you know, do all kinds of shit that just make life unpleasant. But in the immediacy of needing medical care, it is against the law to deny medical care. So keep that in mind if you're doing a hobo thing. You can, you know, you're kind of dropping off grid. If you feel like you need it, it's there. So we go in there, um, you know, go through all the 
processing and everything and find out, you know, they're asking her what pain between one and 10 she's feeling. She says eight, they write down 10 shit like that. Um, and we wait in the, uh, waiting room, um, for hours. And eventually, you know, I asked Teresa, are you okay in here? Like I'm falling asleep. If, uh, you know, you need me, um, let me know. And she's like, no, I'm going to wait a little bit longer. I want to, you know, it, it seems to be subsiding a little bit, but I want to find out if I can what it is because they've taken a blood test. So it's like, God, what time did we get there? Like nine-ish. Nine-ish. And it was like 2.30 in the morning. And there was hardly anybody in the, the waiting room. But they finally t- take her back there. And the diagnosis after all this blood test and waiting oh, wait, is Therese. Wait, wait, let me do it. Let me do it. The doctor comes in and says, well... Your blood tests and your urinalysis look fine. When's the last time you made a poo? Mm. And I really, at that point, felt well enough that I should have just hauled off and beat the shit out of that guy. But instead, he was offering to get the shit out of me. You should have <laughs> let go of that fart you were holding on to. That would have taught him. Well, yeah. It, I also had a, a very expensive, I'm sure, CT scan of my abdomen and look, I'm going to disclose. I was a little bit of a pig that day and ate a medium size pizza from Papa John's. That was like a pizza I'd never eaten before. Uh, spinach Alfredo pizza. And so he said on the x-ray of my abdomen, it looked like I had a lot of air in my stomach and it looked, he asked me again, like when's the last time you went to the bathroom? I said this morning, which I had. Now you know everything about my bowel (laughs) movement habits. And he just couldn't, like, he couldn't find anything else wrong with me, even though I swear I have never felt a fart or a turd that made me have waves of nausea. Yeah, usually it just makes me nauseous. Yeah, yeah, right. (laughs) So I was pretty pissed off about that. I, you know, I kind of... shuffle back out to the van about three in the morning and Gumby wakes up when I open the door and I tell him like, well, they just said that uh, I just needed to fart. (laughs) But I got to say all the ridiculousness of that aside, it was also a very sobering experience. There's a few things that were really kind of scary about that. One, Teresa has this unknown illness. We're way out in the country and um, we don't have phones. So We've been in so many places without phones that if that had happened, it wouldn't have been a quick rush to the emergency room. Um, so there was that aspect of it. There's the aspect of not having health insurance, which, you know, I don't know if anything things would have gone any better or not with health insurance. But um, I don't think in the emergency room they would have. Yeah, I don't really think so either. But still, there's this kind of, I mean, when you're with somebody and, you know, nobody knows what's going on and they're sick and you're feeling like, damn, you know, what are we going to do? Um, I don't know. There's that little narrative that suddenly it just adds to the fear of like, oh my God, we don't have health insurance. And, um, yeah, just the, uh, and not knowing what it is, you know, like we're always eating questionable stuff, you know, whether it's scavenged and I, I'm kind of thinking like probably if this was food-based other than just habits of maybe, you know, not eating the best we can. And, Even that, you know, there's just so many levels to this. Like, how much do you take responsibility? Like, it's my fault, whether it's scavenged food or forage food or just bad choices of consumer food. And how much of it is genetics, you know? How much do we waste time beating ourselves up about 
this ticking time bomb that is our bodies, no matter who you are, you know? Well, so there's just a lot of stuff that came up around that, and it's uh, spurred on a lot of um, kind of serious conversations between Teresa and I about, let's reevaluate about what we're doing, what we want to do, because, um, you know, let's explore how we felt about that, because chances are, I mean, not chances, we are certainly getting older, certainly something like this is going to happen again, and... Um, you know, luckily that didn't turn into a crisis. It could have gone another way and been a crisis. And I'm not saying that being a hobo and living the way we do, like, makes it a crisis, because sometimes crisis happens, no matter where you're living, how you're living. I mean, things happen. But it has brought up a lot of questions and thoughts and reflections for me, Um, because it's one thing to kind of make my own choices, have my own regrets. But I got to say, as the person that wasn't feeling that pain, but you know, had the responsibility because Teresa couldn't drive. So anything that had to happen was kind of had to be led by me as the person that wasn't sick. Um, yeah, it was it was scary for me and I think an important way to kind of, you know, consider like, are these risks that I take worth it? Are they even risks? Or is that just part of the brainwashing kicking in that like, ooh, you're leading a risky life just because something happened that, could have happened to anybody, you know, just, I don't know. There's a lot of questions that come up. And one thing I do think is it's good to reflect. It's good to really ask those questions, dig underneath those questions and use them as tools to explore your life. Like Socrates said, an unexamined life is, is not worth living. Yeah. And I mean, I appreciate the, um, you know, questioning and just reevaluating. I do think that, you know, most of the time Gumby and I eat exactly the same thing. That day, with that pizza, we had a half full bottle of wine we'd found in the dumpster. Yeah, that I was... maybe no, I would say definitely unwisely was like, eh, you know, you feel okay about this? I do. I don't think the wine made us sick because I drank it. Teresa drank more than me, but I didn't feel any trace of anything. So I don't think it was the wine, but the fact that that question comes up is kind of, you know, like, wow, that that wasn't very smart to eat. Uh, or ingest something that was open. It's one thing to get something from the dumpster that's not. And if you're really hungry and you need it, it's one thing to eat something that's open because, you know, but just to take that risk, I don't know, I wouldn't have done that again. And the other thing is, I mean, there is proof that there has been something going on with me for a couple of weeks because remember in our audio journal, our week, I think it was the first entry I said, I think I said something to the effect of like, I've been having this weird pain in my side and, you know, I had, you always say like, oh, I'm going to drink more water. I'm going to watch what I eat. And I started to, but I, you know, maybe I really overdid it that day, like tipped the scales against myself with eating the pizza and maybe drinking that wine, whether or not, you know, something was wrong with the wine, but the pizza was store-bought. It wasn't like we, you know, got it out of the dumpster or something. And I... I will say that um, even though the doctor, because you can actually access the notes that the doctor wrote, and they were, um, <laughs> well, whatever. I guess I'm just being sensitive about it. But that it the was, doctor described Teresa's body as well developed. Yeah, but other than that, um, <laughs> I mean, like just saying something like, "Oh, the patient." Uh, you know, said that they had a bowel movement that morning, but that's likely unlikely. I mean, what? I mean, I know when I took a shit, it's like, why would I lie about that? 
I'm in the emergency room. I, I mean... Well, you did lie about smoking weed. They asked if you'd taken anything for the pain. <laughs> See, I don't lie to a doctor. I figure if I'm going to go in there, if I've smoked weed or taken a drug, fuck it, it's a doctor. You know, like I've I've had a little bit of medical training myself, and it's just that's not what they're there for is to get you in trouble. Supposedly, they're not there to judge you either, but of course, being human, they do. Um, I just but yeah, like, you lied about that. I felt like it was irrelevant because if there was anything— But that's for the doctor to figure out. Yeah, if—, if we eat and drink and smoke the same things. And I've been having this problem for weeks now, if not longer, because a couple years ago, I also had this something happen when we were still living in the trailer. So anyway, the point being, they couldn't find anything. So hopefully when we go on this backpacking trip, I don't die in the woods. Well, you know, poisoning drugs is like straight out of the CIA handbook. Yeah. I don't know. You would have also gotten sick. That's true. But anyway, there's this, like, going on 11 minutes, and we've got a lot of stuff to cover, so... Oh, we know. I never have as much stuff to talk about as we think we do. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the name of this episode is um, Terpsichore, and Terpsichore is the name of this fictitious place that is described in a, a parable of sorts by Daniel Quinn in his book My Ishmael. My Ishmael was the third in a trilogy that Daniel Quinn wrote, um, the first being Ishmael, which did you know it won this, like, $500,000 prize from the Turner, like, Ted Turner? Ted Turner, Turner, yeah, I did. (laughs) And uh, the the CNN and other media mogul. Um, Interesting. And, uh, yeah, and so Ishmael is this, like, really big gorilla, gorilla, right, who can transmit his thoughts or speak with, uh, with humans about very philosophical things. And the first book, um, Ishmael was talking to an adult male. And the second book was the story of B. The third book is called my Ishmael. And he actually is speaking with a young woman, a young girl named Julie, right? Mm-hmm. So this comes from my Ishmael, um, as part of a story that he's relaying to Julie. And he's he's trying to kind of pass on um, the thoughts that he's had, the, the philosophy that he's um, just been playing around with, you know, like thinking about his whole life um, before he has to go back to Africa. Am I right about that? Yes. Okay. So we're going to take turns reading this and story time. Terpsichore. And we begin. Terpsichore is among the places you would enjoy visiting in the universe, Ishmael said. This was a planet, named, by the way, after the muse of dancing, where people emerged in the usual way in the community of life. For a time, they lived as all others live, simply eating whatever came to hand. But after a couple of million years of living in this way, they noticed it was very easy to promote the regrowth of their favorite foods. You might say they found a few easy steps that would have this result. They didn't have to take these steps in order to stay alive, but if they took them, their favorite foods were always more readily available. These were, of course, the steps of a dance. And, you know, I'm thinking here, like, it's, it's interesting how he's using the steps of a dance as a metaphor for, you know, kind of the dance we do of, uh, I guess, living, you know, the steps of a dance. Um, depending on what tune you dance to, it's kind of what story you enact as he talks about in other books. And, uh, yeah, it's interesting 
how he talks about that being the, the, the steps of a dance to grow your favorite foods. Because as someone who's done a lot of foraging in my life, there's some good stuff to forage out there, no doubt. But man, I tell you, it's not big juicy tomatoes and jalapeno peppers and shit like that. <laughs> there is a difference. There aren't pizzas growing on trees. <laughs> well, I don't know if I want pizza anymore after that one. A few steps of the dance, performed just three or four days a month, enriched their lives greatly and took almost no effort. As here on Earth, the people of this planet were not a single people, but many peoples. And as time went on, each people developed its own approach to the dance. Some continued to dance just a few steps, three or four days a month. Others found it made sense for them to have even more of their favorite foods, so they danced a few steps every second or third day. Still others saw no reason why they shouldn't live mostly on their favorite foods, so they danced a few steps every single day. Things went on this way for tens of thousands of years among the people of this planet, who thought of themselves as living in the hands of the gods and leaving everything to them. For this reason, they called themselves leavers. And this is starting to breach on something that I've thought a lot about is how... You know, like we read Ishmael and a lot of us are like anti-civ now, anti-civilization, ooh, you know, and we kind of talk about how evil civilization is and how bad the takers are. But it occurred to me quite a while ago that every decision that led us here seems so small. Mm -hmm. You know, if you take it out of context, most of them seemed good. They seemed helpful. You know, you can you can look back and say, oh, agriculture is the worst thing that ever happened to humanity and make a pretty damn good case for it. But when you think about those first people that just figured out how to grow the food that their village liked, favored just a little bit more, it was hard to find the bad in it. You know, it's it's I don't know. It's just interesting to think of it in that context for me. I continue. Oh, wait. And just so in case you haven't read Ishmael or are familiar or aren't familiar with um, Daniel Quinn, he uses levers and takers, which I guess it'll be described in a little bit. But yeah, so the levers kind of, they they don't take. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> well, the levers do take. It's they do like take, but... they take what they need and they leave the rest. Yeah. The takers keep on taking. And uh, yeah, I don't know. It. it this opens, I mean, so much of this just opens up a whole portal that I could stop at any one of these points and we could talk about it for the rest of the episode. So it's tricky to navigate. Um, but yeah, it really, where do you draw the line? Like, you know, to live in complete faith that God takes care of you isn't even making a fire sort of a way of exploiting and manipulating the world. Like, you know, to live in complete faith, I would think you'd just sit there and if a lightning bolt started a fire near you, that's living in the hands of the gods. So I've realized over the years how tricky it is to really figure out where that line is. Mm -hmm. But one group of leavers eventually said to themselves, why should we just live partially on the foods we favor? Why don't we live entirely on the foods we favor? All we have to do is devote a lot more time to dancing. So this one particular group took to dancing several hours a day. Mm. Because they thought of themselves as taking their welfare into their own hands, we'll call them takers. The results were spectacular. The takers were inundated with their favorite foods. 
A manager class soon emerged to look after the accumulation and storage of surpluses, something that had never been necessary when everyone was just dancing a few hours a week. The members of this manager class were far too busy to do any dancing themselves, and since their work was so critical, they soon came to be regarded as social and political leaders. But after a few years, these leaders of the takers began to notice that food production was dropping, and they went out to see what was going wrong. (laughs) What they found was that the dancers were slacking off. They weren't dancing several hours a day. They were dancing only an hour or two, and sometimes not even that much. The leaders asked why. Now, this is interesting. We listen to, there's this podcast we've been listening to called uh, Unsafe Space. Um, Just got turned on to it, and I I like it, even though I don't agree with a lot of it, but it gets me thinking. It gets us talking. Um, And the guy in the show, I can't remember his name right now, Carter or something like that, but uh, he was talking about how he hates the word workers, and at first I was thinking he was going to say like he hates the word workers because it's kind of dehumanizing to the people that work, but no, his whole problem with that was that he felt like it implied that the manager class, you know, that Quinn's referring to here, doesn't work. And he's like, you think that's easy? I've been around people who have started businesses, who've started these corporations, and, you know, they sacrifice, they take risks, you know, they're not just sitting there with their, their thumb up their ass while everybody else works. There's a reason why they have that position. And uh, I, don't, I, I don't agree with everything he said, but it was a good point. It was a good point he was making. You, you can't just pluck somebody out of the working class and make them a manager. People just aren't fit for that job. There's a lot of organization, a lot of like, you know, things that are required for that. So I don't know. I'm trying to reassess a lot of the things I've been thinking and maybe gotten too blind and comfortable with and uh, try to look at them differently. But yeah, I thought that was interesting. And um, we were also talking about You know, one thing that I'm starting to try to question more is when we pick out the bad guys. Jeff Bezos, he's the bad guy. Again, Bill Gates, like the manager class. And I'm not saying these motherfuckers aren't bad guys. Like (laughs) when I hear some of the things they're doing, you know, oh, man, like it definitely I oppose it. But when I take a step back, how many of us like if you were born into intergenerational wealth, no matter what color you are, no matter what sex you are, if your family had opportunities and laid them out in front of you and like here, you know, and you knew that you were getting an opportunity because of your family. How many of us would would say, no, I'm not going to do it because it's not fair? How many of us turn away from health care because not everyone gets it for free, for instance? <laughs> not damn many people. So, you know, when I think about that, it's not so much Jeff Bezos. It's the system itself. And when I think about the system, like what's the underlying problem of the system? What do I mean by that? It is a surplus. It's an overpopulation. I feel like that's what it boils down to, which is something I feel like is aligned with Quinn. If you have a few people, like up to 150 from what I've heard before, they can form an effective tribe and they almost by necessity will. When it starts exceeding that, no matter what form of government, whether it's socialism, communism, capitalism, Corruption seeps in. It just doesn't work. Looks good on paper. All of it. I can make a I can make a great case for capitalism or communism. But the fact is, every time we see it tried, it is not what it looks like on paper. Yeah. And why doesn't it work? Too damn many people. 
What's the point of all this dancing, the dancers said. It isn't necessary to dance seven or eight hours a day to get the food we need. There's plenty of food, even if we just dance an hour a day. We're never hungry. So why shouldn't we relax and take life easy the way we used to do? And that's what Teresa and I are trying to do. And let me tell you, I don't think Quinn did this himself because he doesn't explore much uh, about the challenges of this. But uh, you start freeing up your free time, you're moving into a whole new realm of challenges. It's not just like Huckleberry Finn out there on the raft fishing and just taking it easy. Um, Yeah, I'd say there's – as I explore this, and I'm really glad I explored this, you get past the theory. It comes with its own set of challenges. The leaders saw things very differently, of course. If the dancers went back to living the way they used to, then the leaders would soon have to do the same, and that didn't appeal to them at all. (laughs) They considered and tried many different schemes to encourage or cajole or tempt or shame or force the dancers into dancing longer hours, but nothing worked until one of them came up with the idea of locking up the food. Mm. What good will that do, he was asked. The reason the dancers aren't dancing right now is that they just have to reach out and take the food they want. If we lock it away, they won't be able to do that. But if we lock the food away, the dancers will starve to death. Mm. One thing that I don't like is, again, I feel like we're kind of falling into the, like, here's the villains kind of thing. Hmm. Did you want to talk more about that or... I mean, just what I said before, you know, like when he talks about these guys that are coming up with like, oh, they didn't want to do that at all. You know, it's kind of like, here's the poor victims, you know, the working class. And here's the the managers that are like, ooh, how do we how do we trick them into it? And I don't know. I don't know. Something's not sitting right with that. That with me, the, the more I study, the more I think, the more it's like, it's not that clear cut. You know, I feel like. For one thing, I wonder how much it absolves our responsibility. When I look around, when I look at Jeff Bezos, for instance, he does a lot of shit I don't agree with. Who needs that much money? Bill Gates, oh my God, we could, we should do a whole episode on this guy, the shit he's into. Holy crap. But why are they powerful? Because people demand it. They have a demand and they're meeting their demand. Hmm. People feed them. It's not just here's the bad guys leading us astray. The people are demanding, like, Look how we vote for a new bad guy every four years. You know, we demand it. So, I don't know. I feel like this is a part of Quinn's writing when I read it now at this point in my life. And this is one of the things I like about Quinn. Every few years, I'll read back through his stuff and it will hit, hit me differently. But some of this stuff, I feel like, is oversimplified. And I realize he's trying to make a point. But oversimplified to the point of, I don't know, I feel like maybe a little bit misleading. Because... If we're really wanting to get free of these people, why don't we fucking get free? Keep in mind, we're talking about a time that the the world was not overpopulated, that he's describing. That there was supposedly, according to Derek Jensen and other people, streams full of fish, huge herds of buffalo, huge flocks of passenger pigeons. There was food just kind of falling out of the sky everywhere. Why were these people willing to follow these people, how could you lock food under lock and key? You know why? Because they wanted the food that these people were helping make happen that didn't happen without them. Well, yeah, like we are, you know, we don't have that abundance now, 
we do have, you know, ways that we forage and we can hunt and fish, but it certainly isn't having your favorite food from the processed foods or the fast food places. Yeah, it's our addictions that keeps us bowing down to these people. And, you know, I would imagine, like, I I really try to step outside of the box and imagine, what would these people say if I had Jeff Bezos here? What does he think in his private thoughts? And I would imagine, you know, he's kind of feeling like, well, the people want this. They demand it of me. If it wasn't me, it would be somebody else. And sure enough, that's what I see. If they do step down, it is somebody else. And, you know, this whole Great Reset and everything, they're probably thinking, well, hell, I just happen to be the one with the power right now. Somebody's got to make some decisions. And uh, everybody's looking to me. So I don't know. I'm just trying to step outside of the box I've been stuck in for a while because I don't know how much it's serving any of us. I thought it was also interesting how um, Quinn stated that the people that were in power were very reluctant to give up that power. Which, I mean, I find that to be very true, whether it's government or corporate or both. So Gumby, you had read, but if we lock the food away, the dancers will starve to death. No, no, you don't understand, the other said with a smile. We'll link dancing to receiving food. So much food for so much dancing. So if the dancers dance a little, they'll get a little food. And if they dance a lot, they'll get a lot. This way... Slackers will always be hungry, and dancers who dance for long hours will have full stomachs. They'll never put up with such an arrangement, he was told. They'll have no choice. We'll lock the food away in storehouses, and the dancers will either dance or they'll starve. The dancers will just break into the storehouses. We'll recruit guards from among the dancers. We'll excuse them from dancing and have them guard the storehouses instead. We'll pay them the same way we pay the dancers, with food. So much food for so many hours of guarding. It will never work, he was told. Kind of sounds like he's describing capitalism. You dance more, you get more food. Mm-hmm. But oddly enough, it did work. It worked even better than before, for now, with the food under lock and key. There were always plenty of dancers willing to dance, and many were glad to be allowed to dance 10 hours, 12 hours, even 14 hours every single day. Putting the food under lock and key had other consequences as well. For example, in the past, ordinary baskets had been good enough to hold the surplus food being produced. But these proved to be too flimsy for the huge surpluses now being produced. Potters had to take over for basket makers, and they had to learn how to make bigger pots than ever before, which meant building larger and more efficient kilns. And because not all dancers took kindly to the idea of food being locked away, the guards had to be equipped with better weapons than before, which meant that toolmakers began looking at new materials to replace the stone weapons of the past, copper, bronze, and so on. As metals became available for use in weapons, Other artisans found uses for them. Each new craft gave birth to others. But forcing the dancers to dance for 10 or 12 hours a day had an even more important consequence. Population growth is inherently a function of food availability. If you increase the food available to any population of any species, that population will grow, provided it has space into which to grow. And of course, the takers had plenty of space into which to grow, their neighbor's space. They were perfectly willing to grow peacefully into their neighbor's space. 
they said to the leavers around them, Look, why don't you start dancing the way we do? Look at how far we've come dancing this way. We have things you can't even dream of having. The way you dance is terribly inefficient and unproductive. The way we dance is the way people were meant to dance. So let us move into your territory, and we'll show you how it's done. I heard somebody recently say that he, they were so sick of hearing people talk about overpopulation because uh, if all the people that say there's too many people on the planet killed themselves, the problem would be solved overnight. Oh, God. And even though I, uh, you know, I'm one of those people that talk about overpopulation and obviously I'm not someone who has killed themselves, and I do agree with that being a foundational problem, I also agree with that guy's sentiment. I think what he's saying underneath that, you know, kind of jaded comment was something I've been feeling more and more. I am so freaking sick of people talking about what the problem is, what we need to do about it, and not doing it themselves. Mm. I'll tell you one thing I run into almost every conversation I have with somebody is if I pin them down and say, oh, well, we need to take down civilization. What are you blowing up? What can I help you with? Oh, we need to uh, escape civilization. How are you doing it? Teach me. Um, the thing people fall back on is, well, if I just do it, one, you know, one crackpot, it's not going to do any good. We need everybody to do it. <laughs> so it exempts them. Yeah, it exempts them. Nothing <laughs> fucking happens. So we have a whole population of everybody looking at each other like, no, no, you first. No, you first. No, you first. <laughs> it's juvenile. And I'm getting pretty sick of it myself. And wait, before you go on, something else that popped out in the thing I just read was when Quinn says population growth is inherently a function of food availability. We talked about this in our episode, Quinn's Boiling Frog. Um, and I guess maybe we'll mention uh, the experiment, the mouse experiment, Universe 25, um, later on. But I think, and I, I mean, I'm not a scientist. I think that there's a lot more to it than just like, okay, here's people, here's food, go at it. And if there's enough food, there's just going to be more and more and more people. I just, I don't think it works quite like that. I, I don't know. I just, there's, there's more to it than that, I think. Yeah. I mean, I'm feeling, I'm feeling frustrated. I feel like shut up and do something, <laughs> you know, like prove to me that your theory works in your own life. If your excuse for not testing your theory in your own damn life is that, well, if everybody doesn't do it, then of course it won't work. I just feel like that's as bad of a cop-out as any kind of political doublespeak I've heard any politician bullshit with. Um, prove it. So, some of the folks around them thought this sounded like a good idea, and they embraced the taker way. But others said, we're doing fine the way we are. We dance a few hours a week, and that's all we care to dance. We think you're crazy to knock yourselves out dancing 50 and 60 hours a week, but that's your business. If you like it, you do it. But we're not going to do it. The takers expanded around the holdouts and eventually isolated them. One of these holdout peoples were the Singe, who were used to dancing a couple hours a week to produce the foods they favored. At first, they lived as before. But then their children began to be jealous of the things taker children had, and they started offering to dance a few hours a day for the takers and to help guard the food storehouses. After a few generations, the sins were completely assimilated into the taker lifestyle and forgot that they had ever been the singe. And, uh, yeah, that especially reminds me of uh, the white plight, shall we say. You know, a lot of the other uh, races that have more newly been assimilated through 
whatever slavery, genocide, however, you know, and Quinn's going to go on to elaborate about the, the different ways that the different tribes were assimilated. Um, a lot of them are close enough to remember who they were, even though they, that memory is fading because they don't act like who they were before. Um, but a lot of us in, I'd say the white culture, um, some brown skinned people too, like I'm thinking of Asia, I don't know, India, some of the older cultures that have civilization as we recognize it now, instead of a tribal way of life, we have no idea who we were. You know, I mean, some of us can't even find the name that we used to call ourselves. It's completely obliterated. Um, no, you moved my paper, Teresa. So I'm looking through this paper. There was something else I wanted to say. Oh, the children. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and more people need to teach their children, need to take a stand, maybe need to be tough parents. Like, oh, man, I've seen so many liberal parents that never stand up to their kids. Like, oh, OK, honey, you know, like, I'll, I'll do whatever you say. And, you know, I want my kids to have everything. I don't want them to grow up poor like I did. Mm. We need more parents. And I know so many parents that otherwise, other than like wanting to cater to their children, see the problem. They're just not willing to take a stand and do something about it. If your children are feeling jealous, that is an opportunity to talk to your children, to teach them something else, teach them something so good, so wild, so natural, so tough that the other children get jealous because all they've got is a fucking iPhone. Um, it's just completely backwards. And I'm so tired of hearing parents like talk about, oh, our children got, you know, of course my kid needs a phone. They'd be the only one in school without a phone. Good. Give them something in addition to the phone that makes those kids stuck on their stupid little Candy Crush video games feel jealous because Candy Crush is stupid. And we covered this in our episode about uh, if I didn't have kids, that was in season one or two, I think. Season one, Gumby said. And, uh, yeah, it's it's not about if you didn't have kids. This is the type of thing that you should be doing because you have kids taking a stand so that they can have a future. But who am I to say anything because I don't have kids? Another holdout people were the Kemki, who were used to dancing just a few hours a week and who loved the leisure this lifestyle gave them. They were resolved not to let happen to them what happened to the singe, and they stuck to their resolve. But soon the takers came to them and said, Look, we can't let you have all this land in the middle of our territory. You're not making efficient use of it. Either start dancing the way we dance, or we're going to have to move you into a one corner of your territory so we can put the rest to good use. But the Kemke refused to dance like the takers. So the takers came and moved them into one corner of their land, which they called a reservation, meaning it was reserved for the Kemke. But the Kemke were used to getting most of their food by foraging, and their little reservation just wasn't big enough to sustain a foraging people. The takers said to them, That's all right. We'll keep you supplied with food. All we want you to do is stay out of the way on your reservation. So the takers began supplying them with food. Gradually, the Kemke forgot how to do their own hunting and gathering. And of course, the more they forgot, the more dependent they became on the takers. They began to feel like worthless beggars, lost all sense of self-respect, and fell into alcoholism and suicidal depression. In the end, their children saw nothing on the reservation worth staying for and drifted off to start dancing 10 hours a day for the takers. 
that was really sad because it brought home a lot of the things we saw on our trip uh, or trips around the country and around North Carolina, going on the reservations and just seeing how much has been lost um, because of the actions of the U.S. government. Um, And it's hard, you know, because my people, Gumby's people, you know, we don't know who they are. We don't even know the names of those tribes. And I don't know anything of the way that my people lived. And here, you know, we've got Cherokee, we've got Lumbee, we've got the Okanichee, Saponi tribes, um, many, many Tuscarora. Of course, I'm not sure how many are left of them, but um, many, many survivors who have at least some sense of how their ancestors lived in harmony with the land. And yet, see a lot of people, pretty much everybody with the smartphones and like smoking cigarettes and stories about drug, like hard drug use, like heroin, ruining families, ripping tribes apart. And, uh, just, (laughs) it's just hopeless. And it goes back to Gumby, what you were talking about before. It's like, we want these things. Like we want the cars and the smartphones. We want the, the junk food and the drugs, but it's, I mean, to me, it seems like it's because we lost that connection to how we were. It's like, we want the balm of this thing. Yeah, sure. Fast food tastes great, but, um, maybe it's still trying to fill that void of what we had connection to before. And we've talked about the true cost of things before, and I feel like a few people in history have recognized this and really spoke loudly about it. And my example is always, you know, I think about uh, Gandhi and Tecumseh, who are both telling their people, don't trade with them. Don't use their shit. Like, you think you just trade something and it's fine. Like, you get their metal, you get their knives, you get their clothes, um, whatever. You get their alcohol, but you're trading more than you think you are. You're trading your autonomy. You're trading your independence. You're trading your pride. You're trading your freedom. You're trading your soul. And, uh, you know, I think about that, like, God, somebody, well, Chris McCandless for one, but there was somebody else I thought of too, that was talking about, I don't even go to food pantries. Like, um, I'd rather dumpster dive. I won't go to food pantries. Teresa and I go to food pantries and I can see why you, Every time you make a decision to be dependent on something that someone else is giving you, especially when it comes to the government, it really is a crippling blow. That's a big decision. And, uh, yeah, I just feel I I find a lot of warning in that, a lot of valid warning. Another holdout people were the Wadi, who spent only a few hours a month dancing and were perfectly happy with that lifestyle. They'd seen what happened to the Singe and the Kemke and were determined it wouldn't happen to them. They figured they had even more to lose than the Singe and the Kemke, who were already used to doing a lot of dancing for the sake of having their favorite foods on hand. So when the Takers invited them to become Takers, the Wadi just said, No thanks, we're happy the way we are. Then when the Takers finally came and told them they'd have to move onto a reservation, the Wadi said they didn't care to do that either. The takers explained that they weren't being offered a choice in the matter. If they didn't move to the reservation willingly, they'd be forced they'd be moved by force. The Wadi replied that they would meet force with force and warned the takers that they were prepared to fight to the death to preserve their way of life. They said, Look, 
You have all the land in this part of the world. You don't need this little part that we're living in. All we ask is to be allowed to go on living the way we prefer. We won't bother you. But the taker said, you don't understand. The way you live is not only inefficient and wasteful, it's wrong. People weren't meant to live the way you live. People were meant to live the way we takers live. How can you possibly know such a thing, the wadi asked. It's obvious, the taker said. Just look at how successful we are. If we weren't living the way people were meant to live, then we wouldn't be so successful. To us, you don't look successful at all, the wadi replied. You force people to dance 10 and 12 hours a day just to stay alive, and that's a terrible way to live. We dance just a few hours a month and never go hungry, because all the food in the world is right out there free for the taking. We have an easy, carefree life, and that's what success is all about. The taker said, that's not what success is all about at all. You'll see what success is about when we send in our troops to force you onto the land we've set aside for you. Mm. This reminds me a little bit of the Cherokee and the Trail of Tears, you know, that they um, were willing to, as Quinn said, dance a few hours a day. They were willing to adopt a lot of the taker ways, but still wanted their own autonomy and resisted being forced onto the reservation um, out in Oklahoma, the Trail of Tears. Um, but one thing that I kind of, I'm not sure I agree with is when the Wadi reply, you don't look successful at all. From what I've read, one of the reasons why Christianity was adopted so much into indigenous tribes and, um, you know, a lot of the things that happened in history, why there wasn't more resistance in some cases is because we did look so successful, um, one of the ways that a lot of the lever cultures kind of assessed power, whether the great spirit favored a particular lifestyle, is success. Is it favored? You know, is it given more power? A right path is given more power. A wrong path is starved. And so when you see these people that seem to have all the guns, all the people, everything in their favor, all the odds in their favor, you know, a lot of people are like, they must have some very powerful medicine if the Bible helps them get there and Jesus is their, their leader and et cetera, et cetera. Maybe we should listen. Um, and that's always been something that kind of puzzled me in a bigger sense about history is, uh, you know, I know, uh, what's his name? Jared Diamond explores this and says, why was it? these people in Europe rather than these people in North America that were successful, you know, again, what do we call success, but ended up developing these advanced weapons and everything because of, you know, he talks about geography and, you know, all kinds of things that are really interesting, I think, add to the puzzle. Um, but yeah, it's, I don't know, it's a, it's a good question to bring up and explore. Yeah, that particular part in this story, um, it, yeah, it just really starts to hit home for me. And while I understand what you're talking about with the, the appearance of success, of course, you know, living in this culture, knowing the rate of suicide and depression and all the problems that are still going on where our culture has touched other people's cultures that are now just echoes in the background. They're not even really able to, um, to practice the way that they once lived. It's, uh, yeah, it's just really sad. I also think about something else I learned about history, American history in particular, is while there were indigenous tribes out there, um, the recruitment for indigenous tribes was far more successful than the recruitment, recruitment by the French or the English. Mm. 
So in other words, when the English, let's say, would capture French soldiers, French settlers, and you know allow them to join their community, or Indians, there was a much higher rate of we don't want to be a part of your community. The same for the French. The English actually had less recruitment than anybody else. People are like, we don't want to live like the way you do. <laughs> the French were a little more successful, but the Indians, over and over, when white people were captured and adopted into the tribe, the people did not want to come back. And so I could see how that was a huge threat to our culture. Imagine you're trying to, to sell this to everybody. This is the right way to live. We got to work hard, this Protestant work ethic. This is what God wants. If we all you know, work hard, we can achieve this manifest destiny. Pretty soon we'll be flying to Mars. I mean, this is the path to ultimate power that we can't even imagine right now. And right next door are these people that are actually happy, that are like again and again, just by their lifestyles, challenging this paradigm. So I definitely can see how that was a threat, just having people live this way. And I still see it, you know, like um, we still see people wiping out tent villages, you know, like going there, cops tearing down the tents. You can't be here. We don't want to see somebody else trying something that might succeed. Um, oh, that reminded me of something else in our life, just how progress, you know, everything is just moving on and consuming everything, every little bit, every little space that we inhabit is just being built up or at least the trees are being torn down and, and there's more and more runoff in the creeks and rivers where we bathe and, you know, where we... Right now, we think we're out in the country and we enjoy the sounds of coyotes. They're uh, about to start breaking ground on, I think, an apartment complex. And there's another one near another river where we're, where we go. And it's... <laughs> there isn't anywhere that you can run to. There's nowhere to go. And uh, I guess, you know, the whole idea of there's enough, there can't be enough with this monstrous growth because the growth is going to demand that all of nature, all of what's being given to us freely is done away with. Imagine if there was still a tribe living the old way, the lever way, you might say, out there right in the middle of America that had land the size of one of our states and had been left alone. Imagine now, with all this advanced technology, with the kids' suicide rates soaring, kids don't even want to fucking live anymore, a pandemic where people are getting told to, like, don't even go outside, um, climate change, you know, like you hear in the news, just fear. The reason why they can do that and pump us full of this fear is because we've got no place to go. We have to take it. I don't think they would have made that move before when there was still a next door neighbor that if you were like, oh, my God, this sounds horrible. This is a living hell. I'm going to go try that way. They still got streams full of salmon. This is crazy. Yeah. I don't think they would have been using that propaganda on the population. They would not take the risk of saying, holy shit, we're destroying the planet. You're destroying the planet. You know, it's they wouldn't have used fear because you would have run off to join the Indians. Um, but now that there's no place left to go. Shit, fear is a beautiful piece of propaganda because you can't run off anywhere. All you can do is just pray that there are people smarter and more powerful than you that will come up with the answers because you are scared shitless and you don't know what to do about it. And the Wadi did indeed learn about success, or at least what the takers considered success, when their soldiers arrived to drive them from their homeland. 
The Taker soldiers weren't more courageous or more skillful, but they outnumbered the Wadi and could bring in replacements at will, which the Wadi could not. The invaders also had more advanced weapons and, most important of all, unlimited supplies of food, which the Wadi certainly did not. The Taker soldiers never had to worry about food because fresh shipments arrived daily from back home, where it was being produced continuously and prodigiously. As the war dragged on, the Wadi force became smaller and smaller and weaker and weaker, and before long, the invaders wiped them out completely. And I would add that the Takers also had a different war strategy. They had been practicing for a while of, like, you kill a lot of people and you win in a definitive way, whereas it took the Wadi um, quite a while to wrap their minds around a form of war that wasn't just showing your opponent how courageous you are, don't screw with us. So uh, I, I see that playing out in history of just, you know, the indigenous people trying to wrap their mind around, this is what you call war? What the hell? Um, I don't get it. You know, you're trying to kill everybody? Why? So this was not the pattern, not only for the years ahead, but for the centuries and millennia ahead. This was the pattern. This was the pattern, not only for the years ahead, but for the centuries and millennia ahead. Food production increased relentlessly, and the taker population increased endlessly, impelling them to expand into one land after another. Everywhere they went, they met peoples who danced a few hours weekly or monthly, and all these people were given the same choice that had been given to the Singe, the Kemki, and the Wadi. Join us, and let us pull all the f- put all the food under lock and key. Or be destroyed. In the end, however, this choice was only an illusion, because they were destroyed whatever they did, whether they chose to be assimilated, allowed themselves to be driven onto a reservation, or tried to repel the invaders by force. The takers left nothing in their wake but takers as they stormed across the world. And it finally came to pass, after about 10,000 years, that almost the entire population of Terpsichore were takers. They were just a few remnants of lever peoples hidden away in deserts and jungles that the takers either didn't want or hadn't gotten around to yet. Mm. And there was none among the takers who doubted that the taker way was the way people were meant to live. What could be sweeter than having your food locked away and having to dance 8, 10, or 12 hours a day in order to stay alive? Aren't we all doing that? Well, not all of us. Not all of us. Some of us are... Just slackers. Some of us are losing our shit in other ways. <laughs> and uh, I'll just say we listened to a podcast by Kelly Moody. Hey, um, y'all. Hey, y'all. Ground Shots, where um, I forget who was interviewing the guy. I think it was Gabe, her partner, um, this indigenous person. And I'm going to be a typical white person, as I'm told, and um, and say that I don't remember his tribe. But he had a school uh, this this indigenous person did. I think it's in maybe um, the Pacific Northwest, and he was talking about how um, the school was kind of changing uh, its programs. It was kind of moving away from like uh, survival skills, maybe more into permaculture, and like having the website and YouTube videos. And the guy was he sounded a little older. Um, he said he was trying to do a podcast, but wasn't sure if that was really working. So he was like applying to all these different grants and trying to, um, really start building something up. And what kind of turned me off, uh, personally to what he was doing was it sounded like what a lot of other 
non-indigenous or, you know, basically white people are doing. And, you know, Gumby and I were talking about this the other day and I was saying, I guess it's because there, there isn't a lot of diversity left. I mean, the ways that might have been this idea that like blew everybody's mind and it changed the world that doesn't exist anymore because everything was done away with. It's all our culture with very little left. So I was just adding that in there. In school, this was the history their children learned. People like them had been around for some three million years. But for most of that time, they were unaware of the fact that dancing would encourage the regrowth of their favorite foods. This fact had been discovered only about 10,000 years ago by the founders of their culture. Joyously locking away their food so that they couldn't get at it, the takers immediately began dancing eight or ten hours a day. The people around them had never danced before, but they took it up enthusiastically, seeing at once that this was the way people were meant to live. Except for a few scattered peoples who were too dim-witted to perceive the obvious advantages of having their food locked away, the great dancing revolution swept across the world without opposition. Manifest destiny. And it's really interesting. We, uh, you know, we tried to go through all the presidents, U.S. presidents exposed in former podcasts. We did a six-part series. And uh, a lot of it, you know, when we look back and listen to it, we're like, man, we would have done that a lot differently. <laughs> but we learned a lot along the way. And one of the big things that jumped out that I never understood before was all the different stages that were used by the U.S. government to break down the Indians. And who did they learn all, a lot of those stages from? A lot of those plays in the playbook, uh, what is it, the British? Part of it, yeah, yeah. Some of it's like reservations, scalping. But, you know, I always had the impression like it was just kind of, uh, you know, they won the war. I understood germs, smallpox played a part. But I didn't understand all the policies like the Indian Removal Act, um, followed by, you know, the Indian Allotment Act. Now you own private property, followed by, you know, like... Now we're taking your children and they have to go to our schools. And now we're given financial incentives to move off the reservation altogether. Um, just the stage is meant to break up the tribe. And uh, that was really interesting. You know, that's something like he's talking about the history that's being taught to the taker children that uh, doesn't get explored enough. And definitely what's being taught to the taker children is how indoctrinated they themselves right now are. Um, including the teaching itself. We were listening to that uh, that same podcast. What was it? What's it called? Unsafe Space. Yeah. And they were talking about how um, one of the hosts of the show, their kid is going to a private school, and they're being, in, and it's not a private school for like activism, but they're indoctrinating the children in a certain way, like, oh, we're going to you know crank out more activists for the future, and the the father of this kid is like. I just want my kid to learn, like, in, you know, in his words, I just want her to learn chemistry. Like, I don't want her to be just gobbling up some, someone's idea of what uh, the climate science is. I want her to actually understand it and make decisions on her own. So it's the indoctrination never ends, you know, it's, and it's easy to see this story from the outside as like, oh, okay, it's a parable of our culture. I get it. Um, but do you? <laughs> I mean, aren't 
we all brainwashed into thinking that this is the way and the only way, by the way? Yeah, a lot of us think we're free of this. You know, we're like, oh, this is obviously not the right way to live. Um, You know, you need to walk away from it or you need to fight it. But if that's true, how come you're not walking away or fighting? Again, it goes back to that, oh, well, if everybody doesn't do it, you know, like, but if it's so good, why aren't you role modeling it? You know, and I, I feel like we need more action. We need more people trying things, seeing like, oh, well, actually that sucks. So let me try something else. Um, There's just so much talk, so much white noise, (laughs) white noise. This next part in the book is called The Parable Examined. And uh, it goes back to the story of uh, Ishmael talking to Julie. So this is kind of a a little segue, but it, it also has some good parts in it. So I kept it in here to read. The Parable Examined. Ishmael stopped talking, and I stared into the space in front of me like a bomb blast victim. Finally, I told him I had to go out and get some caffeine and think about all this. Or maybe I just staggered out without a word. I don't remember. Actually, I went back to Pearson's department store and rode the escalators for a while. I don't know why this soothes me, but it does. Other people go for walks in the woods. I go for rides on department store escalators. Then I stopped for a Coke. Looking back, I see that this is the second time I've mentioned Coke. I wouldn't want anyone to think I was giving it a boost here. Everyone in the world should stop buying Coke as far as I'm concerned, but I'm afraid I do occasionally suck one down. After 45 minutes, I was still feeling like a bomb blast victim, except that I wasn't suffering or anything. I felt that I now understood what learning is. Of course, learning can be like looking up the meaning of a word. That's learning, for sure sort of like planting a blade of grass in a lawn. But then there's learning that is like dynamiting the whole lawn and starting over, and that's what Ishmael's tale of the dancers did. Eventually, some questions began to form in my mind, and I headed back to room 105 to get them asked. I said, let me see if I actually understand what I heard. That's a good plan, Ishmael agreed. By dancing, you mean the practice of agriculture. He nodded. You're saying agriculture isn't just the full-scale, all-out farming we practice. You're saying agriculture is encouraging the regrowth of the foods you favor. He nodded again. What else could it be? If you're stranded on a desert island, you can't grow chickens and chickpeas unless you find some already growing there. You can only regrow whatever is already growing. Right. And you're saying people were encouraging the regrowth of their favorite foods long before the agricultural revolution. Certainly. There's nothing mysterious about the process. People as smart as you had been around for as long as 200,000 years when your revolution started. There were people in every generation smart enough to be rocket scientists. But you don't need to be a rocket scientist to figure out that plants grow from seeds. You don't need to be a rocket scientist to figure out that it makes sense to stick a couple of seeds in the ground when you leave an area. You don't need to be a rocket scientist to do a little weeding. You don't need to be a rocket scientist to know that when you're hunting game, it's always better to take a male than a female. Nomadic hunters are only a step away from being hunter-herders who follow the migrations of their favorite animals. And these are only a step away from being herder-hunters who exert some control over the migration of their favorite animals and chase off other predators. 
And these are only a step away from being true herders who control their animals completely and breed them for docility. And here he's talking about what I talked about earlier, how incremental it was. You know, each one was a small step. We didn't get here in just one big boom. So you're saying that the revolution just consisted of doing something full-time that people had already been doing part-time for thousands of years. Of course, no invention ever comes into being fully developed in a single step from nothing. 10,000 inventions had to be in place before Edison could invent the electric light bulb. Yeah, but you're also saying that the real innovation of our revolution wasn't growing the food. It was locking it up. Yes, that certainly was the key. Your revolution would have ground to a halt without that feature. It would grind to a halt today without that feature. That was the last thing I was going to bring up. You're saying the revolution never ended. And yeah, that's, uh, you know, when he talks about Edison, like every invention follows on a hundred other inventions that have to be in place before that invention was ready to bear fruit. That's my big beef with uh, green energy aided, you know, largely by ideas, you know, like Derek Jensen's ideas and people that he's interviewed um, and quoted. But, you know, every new thing that comes along, like the electric car, the solar panel, the windmill, other than just looking at the materials, the cradle to grave cost, um, etc., does it free us? You know, if it's embedded in the industrial society, if it has to be based on a hundred other inventions that are horrible, you're not going to have a hundred horrible things and from a hundred horrible things create something <laughs> good. There has to be something that's good to create something good. Just like he talks about the desert, the the, the island, you know, you're not going to grow chickpeas from nothing. There already have to be chickpeas growing there. I would say the same thing about, about a sustainable way of life. You're not going to just um, take that from a whole culture that has hurtled itself towards destruction and just out of those ideas, those inventions, those ways of living, tweak something and suddenly make it all work. Um, it's just crazy. So, you know, I really appreciate that, what he's, what he's talking about here. That's right. It will end shortly, however. The revolution worked fine so long as there was always more space to expand into, but now there just isn't any more. I suppose we could export it to other planets, Ishmael shook his head. Even that would be a stopgap measure, Julie. Let's say that six billion inhabitants represents a reasonable planetary maximum for your species, though I suspect that six billion is actually much more than a healthy maximum. You'll reach that six billion well before the end of the century. And let's say that you had instantaneous access to every habitable planet in the universe, to which you could immediately begin exporting people. At present, your population is doubling every 35 years or so. So in 35 years, you'd fill a second planet. After 70 years, four planets would be full. After 105 years, eight planets would be full, and so on. At this doubling rate, a billion planets would be full by the year 3000 or thereabouts. I know that sounds incredible, but trust me, the arithmetic is correct. By about 3300, 100 billion planets would be full. This is the number you could occupy in this entire galaxy if each and every star had one habitable planet. If you continued to grow at your present rate, 
a second galaxy would be full in another 35 years. Oh, my God. Four galaxies would be full 35 years later, and eight would be full 35 years after that. By the year 4000, the planets of a million galaxies would be full. By the year 5000, the planets of a trillion galaxies would be full. In other words, every planet in the universe. All in just 3,000 years and working under the improbable assumption that every single star in the universe has a habitable planet. I told him these numbers were hard to believe. I think a few things when I read that. Um, one, of course, you know, when he's talking about this, Elon Musk going to Mars, you know, we're already uh, being kind of primed for this way of thinking that we can just inhabit another planet, which I find absolutely ridiculous. Uh, if we can't make it work on the planet that we were designed to live on that has everything in our favor, the idea that we're so smart that we're going to make it work on a planet that is so barren as Mars is <laughs> – I don't even know where to start with the problems of that. For one thing, why? Why would you want to live on Mars? Jesus Christ, you're not even satisfied here on Earth with blue skies and spring. And air. And air. Yeah, <laughs> air. <laughs> And the other thing, I'm not sure I agree with Quinn here, with his math is sound, but we're not math equations. Yeah, that's what I was saying earlier about the population growth. Yeah, I'm not sure this population is expanding like it should on paper. Um, I feel like we're already reaching, you know, there are theories that we started to explore a little bit in Quinn's Boiling Frog, that there are other theories that say that the population will reach a cap. And I wonder if perhaps part of it is sort of a natural, like, what if there are natural processes that we're not tuned into, that we don't know how they work, but begin to present themselves to slow down the population, even if it's something as simple as infertility, um, which we see growing. The other thing, talking about these billionaires who are taking control in the Great Reset, you know, imagine you are one of these billionaires. You're one of the most powerful, influential people on the planet. Politics? Bullshit. You know who to pay to fucking get the president in office. You know who to talk to to get whatever you want passed, passed. You know how the shit works, and you're the guy pulling the strings. You realize how much power you've got. You're smart. I mean, these guys didn't get there by being stupid. You can say whatever you want to about how evil they are. They ain't stupid. You're sitting there. How can you avoid... The realization that one of the biggest problems facing everybody, even the these, you know, what you might consider the proles, the big dumb masses who just buy your crap and keep you rich, but get angry about stuff, but mainly the stuff you want them to get angry about because you're controlling their thoughts. The one thing that's good for everybody is a decline in population. I wonder how much is being navigated right now. You know, I hear things about chemtrails. I hear things about vaccinations. I hear, I don't know what to believe. I don't have the kind of uh, knowledge, the kind of information to say this is right or this is wrong. But I would think if I was in a position of power <clears throat> and it had fallen on me, like I realized I was the guy that could really change the course of events in the world, that'd probably be one of the big things high on my list is, uh, shit, nobody wants to hear it, but somebody's got to do it population needs to be controlled and god just the irritation of having so many more people and watching you know as our landscape is done away with to be replaced by boxes homes for all of these people all these new people that are just 
chomping at the bit to have even more new people. And, you know, maybe, I mean, I'm not suggesting that people commit suicide, but I kind of wish things would actually change on our views of suicide and just like um, compassionate death because there everybody else is going to be driven fucking crazy. Well, I'll tell you what. Here's one thing I do believe and I agree with Quinn on. There's too many people on the planet. Yeah. And I'll tell you this. If it's between some uh, politician or some political party deciding who gets to live and who dies, you people are not valid members of society, whether you're being selected by race or class or IQ points or whatever they think is the important dividing factor. Um, You line up over here, you get to live, you line up over here, we're going to kill everybody in this line. If it's between that and something more natural, something a little more random, let's say, like, I don't know, like a virus, Mm -hmm. I'm going to pick the virus. Um, Of all the ways for population to be controlled, I mean, everybody talks about overpopulation in a lot of these groups, like Ishmael groups and Daniel Quinn groups. Not many people seem to go to that next step of like, all right, what do we do about it? So are you saying that, you know, if like one out of every 10 people became a shooter, it would be beautiful? (laughs) Nobody's willing to really go to that next step. But if it's between not vaccinating and letting nature decide like, oh, all right, let's do what we do with deer, with every animal on the planet. Let's pick out the weak, the old, the infirm. And, you know, who's left makes... the next generation stronger because those genes get passed on, or if it's some billionaire deciding all the people that are more like him should live and all the people that have different thoughts should die, I'm going with nature. Indeed. All right, so Gumby just read all those numbers and Ishmael says, do the arithmetic yourself sometime. Then you won't have to believe it. You'll know it. Whatever grows without limit must inevitably end by overwhelming the universe. The anthropologist Marvin Harris once calculated that if the human population doubled every generation, every 20 years as opposed to every 35, the entire universe would be converted into a solid mass of human protoplasm in less than 2,000 years. I sat there for a while trying to bring it all down to a manageable size. At last, I told him about someone I knew, a girl who almost went off the deep end when someone finally got around to telling her where babies come from. She must have grown up at the bottom of a well or something, I told him. Ishmael rewarded me with a look of polite inquiry. I guess she felt betrayed by God first, that he would have come up with such a nasty method for human procreation. Then she felt betrayed by everyone around her who had known and hadn't told her. Then she felt humiliated to know that she was the last person on the face of the earth to hear this very simple fact. I take it this has some relevance to our conversation? Yes, I'd like to know if I'm the last person on the face of the earth to hear what you've been telling me today in this story of the dancers. I remember when I first heard where babies came from. I've been wanting a piece of that action ever since. (laughs) Oh, gross. (laughs) That says it all. Yeah. First, let's make sure we know what I've been telling you. What does the story accomplish? That wasn't too tough a question. This is what I'd been thinking about as I traveled the air inside Pearson's. I said, it demolishes the lie that 10,000 years ago everyone gave up foraging and settled down to become farmers. 
It demolishes the lie that this was an event that everyone had been waiting for from the beginning of time. It demolishes the lie that because our way has become the dominant way, this must prove it's the way people are meant to live. So are you the last person on the face of the earth to know all this? Hardly. There are many who, on hearing the story, would feel that they knew it all along or suspected that it was something like that. There are many who might have worked it out, who have all the facts at their disposal, but who didn't. The will to work it out isn't there for them. What do you mean by that? I mean that people seldom look very hard for things they don't want to find. Hmm. They avert their eyes from such things. I should add that this is not an observation of any great originality on my part. Again, Jarek Jensen shared this quote, and damn, I can't think of who said it, but it was something to the effect of, like, you can't convince a man of something he's invested in not seeing. You know, it's his job to not see it or something like that. Well, more than yeah, it's his job, but more than that, because a job, you know, in our culture, you think of clocking in your job as opposed to your life. But we're all invested in the job of being a part of this culture, and we're invested in not seeing certain things. Even the people that think they're seeing it, who have begun to see it, you know, I feel like you're invested in not seeing, you know, the fact that if you don't make these moves, no one else will. You know, I feel like a lot more of us are invested in not seeing parts of this than we think, especially in this culture now where we're throwing around words like woke. You know, a lot of us like to think we're woke, whether I'm talking about the liberal sense of the word or just like being awake, like, oh, I've I'm enlightened. No, you're not. Um, yeah. Why were Democrats calling a Republican, Tim Scott, uh, an Oreo and an Uncle Tim? which is a reference to Uncle Tom. Um, and he is a black senator from South Carolina who's a Republican, and the Democrats were decrying that he was a, a race traitor. And his statement was, um, like, basically, y'all have lost your damn minds, and how do you propose to fight bigotry with bigotry? And I thought that was interesting because it's like, how are you going to be woke or how are you going to say like, oh, I know all about climate change when once again, you haven't done anything to extract yourself from it. You haven't even decided to give up that narrative that this is the way we're supposed to live. Yeah, I guess the invested in not seeing things, you know, the woke left that thinks they're speaking out for racial minorities, the double standard of then becoming very racially hostile towards someone who doesn't fit their narrative. I'm in the green energy crowd, you know, like they're invested in we need to live this way with this technology. So <laughs> they're invested in not seeing that the technology itself, no matter whether it's green energy or uh, more directly based on fossil fuels, because the green energy is also based on fossil fuels, is embedded in a way of life that in a larger sense is failing. We're all invested in whatever narrative that doesn't require us, even in the narrative that it won't do any good if I change, if everybody doesn't change with me. We're all invested in a narrative that allows us to keep living the way we've gotten addicted to and way too comfortable with. And that does not exclude myself. I'm not going to speak for you, Gumby, but I mean, I have those, I definitely have those thoughts. Like, I'm not going to go blow up a dam or like, you know, maybe if everybody was doing it, sure, but <laughs> it's like, it's hard. 
no, we're not excluded from this at all. I mean, we even have conversations now and then if like we want to get an apartment and a job, you know, like if we, is this serving us? Like what good does it do? I mean, there's a lot of questions. We're not talking as people that have the answers. Uh, basically, we're just kind of spewing opinions here and I guess moving the conversation forward in whatever little way we can. All right, so Julie says to Ishmael, I'm lost, I told him after a bit. I think we've wandered off the main road again. We weren't wandering, Julie, at least not aimlessly. Some of what you need to examine can't be seen from the main road, so we have to take a secondary road now and then. But these always lead back to the main road. Do you see where it's leading? I have a sense of it, but I'm not sure. The main road leads to why the people of your culture have to look off-planet to find wisdom, into the heavens, home of God and his angels, into outer space, home of advanced alien races, into the great beyond, home of the spirits of the departed. Wow, I said, is that where we're heading? It never occurred to me that my daydream fit this sort of pattern. That's what you're saying, isn't it? That's what I'm saying. You perceive yourselves to be deprived of essential knowledge. You've always been so. It's your nature to be so. The very inaccessibility of this knowledge makes it special. It's inaccessible because it's special, and it's special because it's inaccessible. In fact, it's so special that you can only access it through supernormal means, prayer, seance, astrology, meditation, past life reading, channeling, crystal gazing, card reading, and so on. In other words, hoogie moogie, I put it. Ishmael glared at me for a moment, then blinked twice. Hoogie moogie? Everything you just mentioned, seances, astrology, channeling, angels, all that stuff. Hoogie moogie is a new one for me. (laughs) He gave his head a little shake, the way you do a salt shaker to see if there's anything in it. Then he went on. What I want you to see is that the people of your culture accept the fact that this knowledge is inaccessible. It doesn't amaze them or even puzzle them. It needs no explanation. They fully expect this knowledge to be difficult to come by. You, for example, felt sure that nothing less than a galactic tour could deliver it to you. Yeah, I do see that now. Ishmael shook his head. I still haven't quite managed to articulate what I'm getting at. Let me try again. Thinkers aren't limited by what they know, because they can always increase what they know. Rather, they're limited by what puzzles them, because there's no way to become curious about something that doesn't puzzle you. Hmm. If a thing falls outside the range of people's curiosity, then they simply cannot make inquiries about it. It constitutes a blind spot, a spot of blindness that you can't even know is there until someone draws your attention to it which is what you're trying to do here with me. Exactly. The two of us are exploring an unknown territory, a whole continent that lies inside your culture's blind spot. He paused for a moment, then said that this seemed like a good place to stop for the day. I guess I agreed. I wasn't exactly tired, but I did feel as though I'd just finished three pieces of pie. Mm. Now I want pie. And I like what he's getting at there. You know, it's... uh, Basically, another way of saying that is that questions are more important than answers. You know, that that if you can't make inquiries, if you don't have curiosity, you don't even know. Not only do you know not know where to look, 
you don't even know there's something to look for. Right. And I do see that. I feel like that is – I see that everywhere. I see that in all groups. I see that in the uh, anarcho-primitivist groups. I see that in podcasts, including many of our own, um, that we get trapped. We get stuck thinking that we've figured out the questions, and even if we acknowledge we don't have all the answers – Rarely do we acknowledge that we might have blind spots so big that we don't even have the questions yet. Yeah, I really liked that he used the words blind spot because it really is just it's it's so strange to think that how we are operating, like the the program that has been dropped into our head may not include the whole entire picture, which of course it doesn't, it can't. I mean, there's just too much. And, uh, yeah, I guess that, that, to me, that passage was that the whole thing about the blind spot. Yeah. One of the best things Daniel Quinn did for me was to point out in very clear terms that have stayed with me. And I still, uh, find it for the most part, true that we do have role models of how to live on this planet happily, Healthily, and when I say happily and healthily, I don't just mean for the people, but for the planet itself. Ways that work, if not perfectly, which, what is perfect? Maybe there's no such thing. I suspect there is no such thing. But better than what we have. And um, that is an eye-opening thing by itself. And I even in Ishmael groups, I see people trying to sidestep that in all kinds of ways. Uh, you can't go back. It's not about going back. It's not about copying anybody. It's not about turning back the clock. It's about, and I feel like Daniel Quinn says this, it's about plumbing and exploring the things that worked and trying to adopt as much of that as we can. Not all of it still fits. That's not the same planet, the same time, and we're not those people. But if they had so much going for them that worked, why would we try to reinvent the wheel? They had things that worked adopting a lot of that. I feel like that's what Teresa and I are trying to clumsily explore. And I do mean clumsy, man. We're all over the map a lot of times. But, uh, you know, I feel like first you have to make space. You got to let go of the shit that doesn't work. And you might spend your whole life looking for the things that don't work and you might not succeed. But how can you even find those things unless you've made space for them? You got to let some shit go. At least that's what I'm thinking right now. Yeah, and uh, we're going to wrap this up here. Um, I guess for me also, it's a reminder about what worked tribe. And Gumby had mentioned earlier uh, about, you know, capitalism, communism, socialism. It doesn't work because it just gets too big. And I would love to be able to know uh, the stories of like, of my ancestors, of, you know, all different groups of people that warned against this. Um, even though, you know, reading, reading that parable as we just did, they probably didn't have much of a choice, you know, even if they knew, even if they fought, uh, this force was just wiping all cultures off of the globe. And why do things get too big? Um, well, we were talking the other day specifically about capitalism, how it depends on growth. 
and and like how people aren't flocking to communist countries because I I said this and I'm again I'm not like any sort of at all I don't understand like economics and and government and all that stuff but I was thinking well at least in capitalist countries we do seem to have a surplus of stuff and things so I mean I could see where people would be flocking over here but that's the whole problem is it's it just has to keep growing and growing otherwise it goes kaput were things not getting too big before capitalism if everybody was a socialist would things not be too big well I was saying like all of those types of government were too big like the only size to me that seemed to make sense was a tribal society but why aren't we tribal societies why did things get too big um i'm not sure this is the short answer (laughs) well i'd say i mean what i get from quinn and what i think is largely true is food food availability Mm -hmm. population you know i mean that's the simple equation quinn keeps you know, going back to is things got too big because of more availability to food. And it's all fine and good to like point that out. We can feel really smart when we tell people, especially that I've never heard that before. But think about it. I mean, I've, I've had survival experience. I've been out there living off of like what I can find, what I can catch. Let me tell you, if somebody's out there with a little bit more of your favorite food, <laughs> it's a rare person that's not going to want to follow that person and say, oh man, this is awesome that you figured that out. Yeah. Let's do that. Mm. So it's, uh, yeah, it's a quagmire. I'm going to attempt to uh, pull the tablecloth out from underneath this here iPad. It's not actually a tablecloth. It's a notebook. Okay. Yeah, did it. Our listener write-in. I picked this one. Uh, this is Eric from Livingston, Texas. Do the Texas accent. No, I can't. Because um, he mentions briefly uh, something about the Universe 25. I think this is the right one. Oh, my God. Yeah. He says, I had a similar encounter with her. And this is in reference to our episode called Tranny Granny um, about Phoenicia Medrano, who is a wild tender. Um, He said he had a similar encounter with her on Facebook a few years ago. No doubt she was an amazing person, but very abrasive. I couldn't argue with her or really deal with her either probably because she knew I was a hypocrite, and so did I. And that's interesting because we were just talking about like a bl- having a blind spot. So that's really good on Eric to recognize that in himself because, I mean, I know I also have blind spots. Uh, she, Phoenicia, recommended I watch a YouTube video, The Mouse Utopia Experiment, Down the Rabbit Hole, probably because I sometimes post social change stuff instead of all the time anti-civilization stuff. But I sure did like that video and still share it sometimes. That's the information I was mentioning about Universe 25. So if you Google something about Universe 25 and a mouse experiment comes up that was done, I think, in the, what was that, in the 70s or earlier, 40s or something, um, you should read about that. We have a shots, which is what we call our little shorts between seasons. Oh, yeah. If you don't want to listen to the entire episode, Quinn Spoiling Frog, um, the shots is about 20 minutes that goes into detail about this very thing. It's called Shots Universe 25. Well done, sir. Eric goes on to say, referring to civilization as Babylon is a Rastafarian term. Rastafarian, man. Oh, you'll do that accent. Uh, it was not good. 
I always thought she, Phoenicia, referred to a bundle as a bundle of seeds for planting and wild tending. And yeah, our episode on um, Tranny Granny, on Phoenicia Medrano, it might not have been uh, one of the best, although we do have a lot of comments from people who knew her um, that said that we did a good job, so... But uh, <laughs> take that, Kelly Moody. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, it was interesting to learn more about this person who has gone on, uh, passed on now, but who was really doing some amazing things in her life. And so, uh, if you want to listen to that one too, just yeah, we do we do some interesting episodes. <laughs> and uh, did you have anything else you wanted to say about that listener writing? Um, let me see it. Teresa's always stealing the notebook, so I forget <laughs> what we're talking about. Um, yeah, I actually, I know exactly what he's talking about because I was in a uh, conversation on Facebook with her and she recommended this uh, video to me. And by then I was so uh, pissed with her and like, it's like, I don't give a fuck what you want me to watch. You watch it. Was she abrasive? Uh, a little bit. <laughs> you know, she wasn't the calm, zen, caring, kind person I am. Oh. But we can't all be, yeah. you know, different strokes. But, yeah, it was interesting to come back to that and realize, like, oh, this is what she was talking about. <laughs> so, again and again, you know, there are powerful lessons, you know. I don't, I don't always credit the people involved because I don't know how much people intend to be instruments of a more divine purpose, karmic purpose, whatever you might want to call it. But again and again, man, I look back at my life and I'm like, wow, there were so many things that my own stubbornness, my own self-importance, being offended, uh, whatever, stopped me from learning a lesson sooner. And who knows how many of those blind spots I have that I don't even know that there's a lesson that I encountered that was valuable, that 20 years down the road, I'm going to discover like, wow, that was there the whole time. So... Interesting. Mountains are mountains, rivers are rivers. If you have any uh, insights, maybe you had a blind spot that you uh, figured out, found out, or otherwise became enlightened, um, or if you just have a comment about our episodes, questions, um, please contact us. Our website is escapingsociety.weebly.com. And our comment form is right there on the front page, since people don't know how to use menus anymore on websites. And uh, should be easy to use. And we also have YouTube videos, which if you visit our website, you can find those at the top. And a uh, Facebook page, which if you type in Escaping Society, you should be able to find that. And on our website, we have a donate button. If you feel moved to give us some money, um, I'm not... Yeah, I'm hopefully going to be okay. I've been having some uh, symptoms after leaving the hospital, but they weren't as severe as what I went to the emergency room for. So, um, yeah. Anywho. Um, Teresa has now been medically, medically diagnosed as being full of shit. <laughs> so if you want to donate some money to help Teresa fart, <laughs> it would help a, us all. I'll buy a bag of prunes or <laughs> something. So yeah, thank you for listening, and uh, we hope to hear from you soon. Bye. Oh, society sucks and we don't need it. It's killing your kids, so why do you feed it? They'll tell you to stay, but you don't need to heed it. You can give them the finger. There's no time to linger.
soul. Thank you for listening to our song. It's not very good and it went kind of long. Don't care if you like it because we'll be gone over that next horizon.